Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. I want to welcome everybody in, and uh, we're kicking off a two-part series on generosity and giving here at City Grace. And uh, I do want to say before I start my comments this morning, um, to all those of the City Grace family, watch your email this week. We will be sending out year-to-date giving statements to kind of uh, see what you've given so far in 2018 and maybe help you set some goals for the last quarter of the year and, and maybe help you out with the lesson next week and what we'll be talking about then. Um, this week, we're going to be talking about kind of the heart of giving and, and why we give the impetus and the drive behind Christian generosity. And the next week, we're going to look at kind of the nuts and bolts of generosity at City Grace um, and kind of dive into how fear tries to undermine our faith at times. Now, here's the thing. If you're a guest here this morning um, and you heard me get up and say that we're going to talk about giving and generosity, you're probably thinking, well, oh, great, right? Just what a, what a day to come to church. But I, I want to give you some context for ourselves and then for Christianity as a whole. We at City Grace, we, we love to be generous with the, the community outside of ourselves. And we really only talk about generosity once or maybe twice a year. But what we're finding is that as we kind of dream bigger and bigger dreams for our city and, and being bless, a blessing to our city, we'll probably move towards that twice a year model. But I actually think if you're a guest here this morning, this could be one of the best days for you to show up at church. And, and here's the reason why. If you're considering following Jesus or, you know, maybe you were, went to Sunday school as a kid, but you never really got involved. Or uh, if you're like me, you went to Sunday school and your mom gave you a quarter to give in the Sunday school offering. There, there are some things to adult faith in Jesus that we kind of don't always get in our childhood faith about Jesus. And one of these things is the reason why we give. And really, when we look at, at today, we're going to talk about the heartbeat of Christianity and Christian generosity. And really, you know, you're going to hear today the heartbeat of Christianity as a whole, the essence of the Christian message. So I think it's actually a great day for you to be uh, at church. And that's kind of us. But then Christianity as a whole Listen, if Christianity today kind of has a bad reputation with money, especially, you know, there of course, some wealthy preachers asking for more and more money and, and wearing diamonds and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and the, the church has kind of gotten a bad rap when it comes to asking for money. But what's really interesting and why I'm glad that you're here this morning is because Christianity's reputation with money, when it started out, it was actually 180 degrees opposite of that. It was actually like that anti-prosperity thing. Christians were known, the early Christians were known as some of the most generous people on earth. And that's really, the, that was the reputation and the hallmark of the early church. And we're going to talk about the day. In fact, on the birthday of the church, like in the first days and the first weeks of the actual church, it had never existed before. There had never been a church before. It kind of had that new car smell to it. You know, everything was, was shiny and new. We find out in Acts chapter two that all the believers were together and had everything in common and they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Anyone, really? They gave to anyone? Yes, they gave to anyone who had a need. And look at the result of this in verses 46 and 47. It says, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So they were opening their hearts and they were opening their homes and opening their pantries to people on the fringes of society, people who were on the ragged edge of of poverty and the ragged edge of illness. And they were meeting the needs of people with needs. And so of course people were being added to the Jesus movement. Who wouldn't want to get in on that? But somewhere along the line, Christian generosity has kind of gotten a bad rap. And so that's why I'm glad you're here today so that we can talk about it. Because I really, I really believe that the scriptures bear this out, that generosity was the hallmark of the early Jesus movement. And it was a hallmark of the early Jesus movement, not because it was a rule. There was no 11th commandment that came along and said, you must have everything in common and give to those in need. But rather, it's the heart of Christianity. It's the essence of what Jesus came to do for us. And it's the, essence, it's the essence of what Jesus told his followers to do to prove that they were his followers. Now, as, as I was thinking through all this and I've been studying on this for a while and, and kind of figuring out how I was gonna to bring it to us, I, I wanna bring out kind of an abstract illustration and hopefully y'all can stick with me for just a second. But as I was reading in, in my studies one day, um, one of my favorite commentators, he was talking about God and and creating the world. He actually wasn't even talking about generosity and giving, but he was talking about God creating the world. And he, he made this statement that God created the world out of his overflowing love because that's what love does. And then he just went on and kept talking or, you know, kept writing. And I was like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me go back and look at that because that's not necessarily self evident that that's what love does, that love creates and, uh, you know, and, and, but then I got to thinking about it. And, you know, think about the time. Anybody remember falling in love? Yeah, I got one. Woo. Man, husbands, I like set that one up on a T for y'all. You should have smashed it out the park. But it, of course, romance is one kind of love. There's other kinds of love. But, you know, thinking about romance, I remember those innocent times before Chelsea proposed to me. And, uh, you know, we just, we kind of wander around in life and we're looking for love, right? There's even a song about it, right? Looking for love in all the wrong places. That's right. And we do though. We wander around looking for love. But think about that. What is that? That we would find something in ourselves that feels incomplete. That we would find something in ourselves that actually needs to be met by somebody outside of ourselves, that we would find ourselves looking for love with someone else who is looking for love. And then when we find that person that's kind of close to our level of attractiveness, right? You guys know what I'm saying? And some of y'all are a lot better negotiators than the other partner in your relationship, I'm just saying. Some of y'all pulled the bait and switch. Let me just, let me just say that right there. But then when you find somebody, you get together and you create a relationship. Now think about that. Two people create something outside of themselves because of love. Something that has never existed before comes into existence because of love creating outside of itself. And suddenly it creates a new context, doesn't it? And you change your relationship status on Facebook, right? From I'm single to taken or what is the next one? And then it's, it's complicated, right? Yeah, there's that one and you better not put that one or you might as well, just, they should just rename that one to it's over if I say this. Like it's, you know, it, and, and so it creates new context. It creates new possibilities. You now have the possibility of being broke for the rest of your life. It, it creates new emotions. <laughs> there was too many yeahs in that one. It creates 
It's painful. I'm going to move on. It creates new emotions. There are new levels of frustration, but there are also new levels of joy. And there's infatuation and there's, there's jealousy suddenly in the mix. All of these things. And, and we feel this new level of fullness by, by giving of ourselves. This new thing that has been created, it affects our finances, doesn't it? I mean, guys just want a lazy boy and a TV. Can I get an amen? Suddenly you bought a formal dining room set and you've never even sat in that chair. This thing that you created affects everything. It causes us to want children. I won't even comment on the insanity of that. But as we in our separateness move toward each other, we create this overlap and this interlock between ourselves and something brand new is created out of love. Think about it. Love creates. Love makes something new that has never existed before. And the two start to become one. And after a lot of years together, people even start to say that you look like each other, don't they? I noticed the other day, where's Chelsea in here? I noticed the other day, I got this little thing on my nose. Chelsea's getting this little thing on her nose. I know, it's bad news for her. And I noticed the other day that my hips don't lie anymore. And uh, I'm becoming voluptuous, you know, just like, but everything, (laughs) everything is just fuller. Everything is fuller now. And here's what's amazing. There's actually not less love, even though we are giving ourselves away. Think about that. We are giving ourselves to something outside of ourselves. And yet when we do that in the right way, we find ourselves more full and more fulfilled than when we were on our own. But here's here's the thing. If either one of those people move away from that relationship, And instead of giving, they start taking. The whole thing starts to fall apart and the life empties and you end up back in that pre-relationship status. If we see a relationship and maybe we've all experienced this or seen this or had friends or maybe even had family where we saw the two pull away from each other. When we saw each of them starting moving away from, starting to move away from each other, we said he doesn't love her anymore like he used to. She doesn't love him like she used to love him. And I haven't quoted one scripture. This isn't a God thing. It's not a church thing. This is just a life thing. It's an existing thing. We understand this outside of spirituality, that love and the strength of love is actually measured by how much of themselves someone gives to a relationship. Love is measured by giving. Love is measured by giving. Giving time to your kids shows them that you love them. Giving attention to your wife or husband shows them that you love them. Giving effort to a job shows that you love what you do. You love your career. Giving thought to a gift. All of these are measures of what you love and how much you love. And so love is is measured by our giving. And then love creates new realities outside of itself. And then love lives and gives for the sake of what was created. Think about that. Love creates new realities outside of itself and then love lives and gives for what it has created. And then we read the first words on the first page of our Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Love creates new realities outside of itself. And then love gives of itself for the sake of what it has 
created. And isn't that the story of the Bible? That God has created a new reality outside of himself and that God has given of himself for the sake of what was created. God, out of his overflowing love, has created a new reality. Something that never existed before comes into existence when God speaks it into existence in a spiritual and omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent eternal God framed our reality through what he spoke into existence. Through his words, God created something brand new. In fact, one of Jesus's early followers, uh, his name was John, maybe the closest follower to Jesus. And, and he wrote a mini biography of Jesus's public career. And you can read it in the new part of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You can read that, that document there. And he was a believer in Jesus. And then he stopped being a believer in Jesus because he saw Jesus die. And then he wasn't sure what to believe for a few days. But then John claims to have seen the risen Jesus. He said, I saw him. I walked with him. I talked with him. And it, re- it erased every shred of doubt from his heart and his mind from then on ever and because of what forever and from because of what he saw then he traveled around parts of the roman empire and he was telling people about jesus and his amazing act of love and inviting them to live with jesus you know a new kind of king inviting them to live with jesus in this new kingship as their lord well, as he did this, the Roman emperor at the time, his name was Domitian, he got really irritated with John claiming somebody else besides Caesar as his Lord and then inviting other people to live with Jesus as their Lord instead of Caesar. And so Domitian had John arrested and exiled to this bare rock of an island called Patmos. And at the end of his life, and John's an old man, he's, he's probably outlived all of the other apostles, probably outlived all of his friends. And, and as, he, as he begins putting together what he knew about Jesus and what he knew about God and the world, this was John's conclusion about Jesus. He goes, in the beginning was the word, in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we think, well, John, you're getting it confused because I know you're, you're trying to quote Genesis there, but Genesis says, in the beginning, God created. And John would say, well, hold on, I'm not done. And in verse 3, he says, through him, through this word, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. And John's going back to creation. John is calling into mind the words that God spoke when he, cre- when he spoke everything into existence. And what he spoke was the word. And you can almost see John grinning and starting to rub his hands together. And he picks up the feather and dips it back in the ink bottle. And John keeps writing in verse 14. And he says, and the word became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. Watch this. Watch this. The overflowing expression of God's love that created everything. John said, that was the word. And then John says, that expression of God's love became human. And then John's not done. He says, and we have seen him. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. John says he was here. We ate with him and we walked with him and we talked to him and we call him the son because he came from the very heart of the father and he unveiled the father. He gave us an actual picture of the father, of the creator God that no one had ever seen before. And John, later on in his letter, he overheard Jesus praying one day and he wrote down, 
what Jesus was praying. And Jesus said, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. Well, what, what work does the incarnate expression of God's love have to do? And we see it happening on the cross when Jesus gave himself for us because love creates and then love gives for the sake of what has been created. Love creates and then love gives for the sake of what it has created. And all through his public career, we see Jesus showing people God's love. At a time when the chosen people of God, who were supposed to be letting the world know that God loved them, at the time when the chosen people of God had made God seem so unattractive and and so racist, really, and so distant from what he actually was, the religious leaders had ruined God's reputation. In fact, in one place, God told them, my name is blasphemed all over the world because of you guys. And Jesus shows up and he breaks down every wall that was separating the creation from its creator. And he came to show the Father in such a way that people wanted to come close to God again. And as Jesus was walking around in his career and and showing people and expressing the love of God to people, Jesus did not claim to have the best explanation of God. Jesus claimed to be the best explanation of God. He did not come with a theory. He came in life and in example and in compassion and in power. There was something otherworldly about Jesus. And he claimed to be the best explanation of God. In fact, one time, one of his closest followers, somebody who should have known, said, Jesus, would you, would you let us see the Father? Like, we're the guys on the inside. Can we, you know, peek behind the curtain? Will you let us see the Father, we've, we've heard you illustrating the Father. We've heard you talking about the Father, teaching about the Father. Can we just see the Father? And you can almost see, you know, see Jesus shaking his head in the story. And he says, Philip, I've been with you all this time. Do you still not understand who I am? When you see me, you have seen the Father. You've seen the Father. And see, John recorded that conversation as well. And then John and later other writers would call Jesus the icon of God. Their Greek word was icon. It was the image of the invisible God, the picture of what God was like. And as Jesus continued his public career, he was not just showing what God was like, but he started showing who God liked. And thank God that God liked people like you and like me. Can I hear a good amen, somebody? And it it upset the nationalist Jewish people. They assumed that God loved them more than everybody else. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You're chosen to be a blessing to everybody else. It upset the religious leaders of the day who thought that God loved them more than sinners. And Jesus told them, no, you've been put in in a position of religious leadership so that you can love sinners more. And then his message, Jesus' message was even controversial to people outside of the Jewish faith. The Greek and the Roman gods of Jesus' day, they didn't love anybody. Those gods didn't care for anybody, which means that anybody that followed their gods didn't have to care for anybody either. And when we think today of what we imagine God to be, what we hope God to be, we think things and we say things like, God is love. We say things and we think things like God loves everybody and everybody matters to God. Listen, those are uniquely Christian ideas. 
Those are uniquely Jesus ideas. They do not originate in any other religion outside of this. And it's all because Jesus came to show the creation exactly who the creator is and what he feels for us. Can I hear a thank you, Jesus, from somebody? And so Jesus kept on demonstrating, not just saying it, but demonstrating that every single person that he came into contact with had worth, had intrinsic worth and value, that everyone was created in the image of the creator and that made them all worth loving all by itself. But nobody thought like that, especially during that time period. Nobody thought along those lines. Your value was tied to what you contributed to society. And if you were disabled or if you were diseased, then you had little to no value. In fact, if you were disabled or diseased, it was considered a punishment by the gods. Even the Jewish people with the one true God thought it was a punishment and taught that it was a punishment from God. And so as a result of that, there was no compassion in that society because everybody was just getting what they deserved. If you're disabled, well, then you must have done something wrong and so the gods have cursed you and so you're just getting what you deserve. If you're sick, well, you're just getting what you deserved. It's some kind of punishment. If you're poor, well, then you're just getting what you deserve. But I'm wealthy and I'm rich and I'm healthy. I'm just getting what I deserve. But compassion and kindness, well, who am I to fight God? Because we're all just getting what we deserve. And then Jesus showed up. And everywhere he went, this man from Galilee, this rabbi from Galilee began turning everyone's value system all the way upside down, or maybe we should say right side up. And he behaved toward the marginalized in a way that told them that compassion is actually a trait of the creator. He taught that if you did for those who could never do for you in return, that it was actually a sign of virtue that it was actually something holy, that the creator, in fact, was watching for this and storing up blessings to pay you back for what you gave out of your generosity. He started teaching that we should view the creator as our heavenly father. And if we're all, in fact, children of God, then we all are equally loved by our father. In that day and in that age, when women had no value almost societally, they were more property than they were people. Jesus gave value and dignity and status to women. Women weren't even allowed to testify in court. A woman could witness a crime, be the eyewitness of a crime and not even be allowed to testify in court. And yet Jesus made women the first witnesses of his resurrection, arguably the most important moment in human history. Jesus entrusted to the witness of women. Jesus was amazing and he stunned his audience time and time again. This blows my mind. A Jewish carpenter from 2,000 years ago, who only taught and had a public career of three years or maybe even a little bit less than that, still influences Western civilization today 2,000 years later. There was something undeniable about Jesus. And I would even go so far as to say, that's what you're witnessing in this room this morning. That's why we lift our hands and lift our voices and sing, I know you'll do it again, because there's something about Jesus that goes beyond normal explanation. Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. And Jesus, in his words, would tell stories like the story of the Good Samaritan, where he made a Samaritan a hero over a priest. Samaritans were despised by everyone. Not just hated, Samaritans were despised. 
And yet through the story of a Samaritan, Jesus redefined what a neighbor was in such a powerful way, in such a powerful way that it still challenges us today. In, in divided America, especially in 2018, we imagine that neighbors are those who live close to us, maybe either close to us in physical space or maybe close to us in ideas or in background. And Jesus said, no, no, in the kingdom of the creator, a neighbor is anyone with a need that you can meet. Wow, wow. Think about that one the next time you're driving by somebody with a flat tire and they've got the wrong political bumper sticker on their car. Yeah. A trilogy of lost things in Luke chapter 15. Jesus told these three incredibly powerful stories. So short, yet so powerful and so dense and, and so impactful. And in this trilogy of, of lost things in Luke chapter 15, Jesus taught that God does not see sinners as someone to chase down and punish, but God sees sinners as someone to chase down and rescue that God does not go after sinners to pay them back, but God goes after sinners so that he might win them back to himself. Jesus told us the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Sermon on the this, another just incredibly dense message that he gave in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. In this sermon, during a portion of it, he, he went on these kind of contrasts. You have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say it. And he said at one point, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for them that persecute you. Because in the kingdom that Jesus was launching into the world, your enemies also are created in the image of God. So love them and pray for them, not for their destruction, but that their hearts would be transformed by the same grace that transforms us. That we are all someone's enemies. We are all, we're enemies of him, but he gave us love. And then another time, he was walking by the temple and it was their time to bring their tithes and their offerings to the temple. And he pulled his disciples off to the side to watch everybody bring in their gifts. And wealthy people were coming up and dropping in large bags of coins into the collection barrels. And there would be noise and fanfare and everybody would ooh and awe and how much people were giving at the temple. And one little old widow lady brought just a couple of cents in the middle of all that procession, just a couple of what in our days would be pennies, and dropped it into the barrel and walked away. And Jesus said, guys, did you see that? And they're thinking, well, Jesus, what did we see what? Did we see the guy in front of her? Are you talking about the guy behind that lady? Who? And he said, no, 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 her. Did you see what she gave? She gave more than anyone else here today. Jesus, you're crazy. Nobody even heard those two pennies hit the bottom of the barrel. And you're saying that she gave more than anyone else. Jesus tied kingdom giving and kingdom generosity to a person's heart. And he said, percentage wise, she gave more than anybody else here today because she gave all she had. Jesus measured her love for God by what she gave. And it left Jesus saying, wow, wow. And then not just his teachings, but his interactions with people. We see these different episodes, one of which where he met with a Samaritan woman. Again, a Samaritan. And this was unheard of for a Jewish man to have a conversation with another a Samaritan man was scandalous enough. To have a conversation with a Samaritan woman was doubly improper. And he told her something that religious people were almost desperate to know. 
And in reaching and meeting the need of this woman who everybody else would have just pushed to the edge and never given two seconds to, Jesus gave her the scoop on God's kingdom that was about to break into her broken world. And he offered her hope in the middle of her despair. He touched sick people over and over again. Nobody touched sick people back then. Like cooties were real. Cooties were dangerous back then. Nobody touched sick people and Jesus touched the sick people. And not only did Jesus not catch their sickness, but because of who he was and as a sign of the kingdom that was breaking into the world, not only did he not catch their sickness, they caught his wellness. Here's something amazing about this. All of the opponents of Jesus, nobody ever said that the the miracles of Jesus did not happen. Nobody ever tried to deny what Jesus did because there were too many eyewitnesses. All the arguments around Jesus' miracles were arguments about what those miracles meant, but nobody ever argued about the miracles actually happening. Historically, when you look at historical proofs and how much is needed for something to be a historical certainty, we have more evidence and proof of the miracles of Jesus than we have for any other singular historical figure that we know of pre-about 1500 AD. It's almost a certainty. It's almost a certainty by scientific standards and certainly a certainty by historical standards. Rome was occupying Israel and Rome was hated by the Jews and then Rome was funding their occupation through taxes on the Jews that they were occupying. And Rome wanted to collect all the taxes they could. They didn't want to miss a dime and because they didn't know everybody and know everybody's situation, what they did was they hired Jewish people to collect the taxes. So Jewish people were working for Rome to collect taxes and they would pocket a little bit more. So they were traitors to their own people, adding to the hardship of their own people. Like the Samaritans, they were despised. And Jesus invited a tax collector to be part of his closest crew. And when he invited Matthew to come and join, it's almost like you can almost hear Peter saying, see Jesus, this is why we can't have nice things. It's no wonder the religious people don't like us. It's no wonder the powerful people in Israel don't like us. You keep inviting all the wrong people into your movement. Again, can I hear a thank you, Jesus, from any wrong people in the building this morning? Jesus kept doing it. And with every interaction, Jesus was saying, I've come to show the love of the creator for what he has created because love creates outside of itself and then love lives for and gives for the sake of what it has created. And then one day, a centurion came to Jesus and asked for a favor. A Roman centurion, a Roman centurion, a reminder that the Jews were captives in their own country, and his disciples have to be upset. Surely, you're not gonna do a miracle for a centurion. Surely, you're not gonna be kind to a Roman. And sure enough, Jesus does the miracle, and he heals the man's servant. And in every one of Jesus' teachings, and in every one of Jesus' interactions, we hear Jesus saying loud and clear that God does not look at people by race. God does not view people by social status. God does not care about your level of wealth. God is not interested in your gender as a discriminator. Whatever other categories or tribes we try and label people with so that we don't have to love them as our neighbor, 
Jesus goes out of his way to give value and worth to every single person that has ever felt like they are without value. And thank God, one day he found you and one day he found me. And at the time when we didn't know if we had any worth, when we were scared to pray those prayers that brought us close to God again, we heard the words of Jesus and we saw the evidence of the cross, the open arms of Jesus calling us back to the heart of a good, good creator God who loves us no matter where we've been, who loves us Mm. no matter who we've been. Until finally, Jesus gave the ultimate demonstration of how much he thinks we're worth and the word, the word through whom the world's were created, the unique son of God who has taken all of the guesswork out of God. He walked up a hill called Calvary and he gave his life for our sake. He gave himself. He gave himself for you. He gave himself for you and you and all the other people that I can't see because it's too dark out there. Turn around and tell somebody he gave himself for you. For every person in this room, he gave himself. For every person not in this room, he gave himself. For every person, because every person is created in the image of God, he gave because that's what love does. He gave because that's what love does. And then when he rose again and he left his movement in the hands of his earliest followers, they got it. They got it. And they went out into their world and they wanted everyone to know that just like Jesus has made the heart of the Father known to us, so we want to make the heart of the Father known to you. And after three years of watching Jesus and hearing Jesus and seeing Jesus wash their own feet, think about this, the king of every king, the Lord of lords, the leader of the movement got down and washed their nasty, dirty feet. He did it and he taught them And their mission was clear that they would go and let their world know just how much has been given to prove God's love. They would go out into their streets and invite their world that was separated from God by their failure. They would invite them into forgiveness. They would invite them to bury their past in baptism. They would tell them that the resurrection gave us hope that we can be free to live a new kind of life, a Jesus kind of life. That if you will place yourself into Jesus Christ, the old is gone. Behold, all things have become new. You are new creatures in Jesus Christ. But what was very clear from the beginning with the church was that the church did not want something from people, but the church wanted something for people. And so no strings attached generosity, no strings attached compassion became the hallmark of the early Jesus movement. And it's everywhere in their story. It's all through the New Testament, woven through all the early documents of the Jesus movement are these calls to radical generosity. Is this teaching that giving is actually a measure of your love for God and for those that God loves. 
Giving is the measure of your love. In fact, years later, one of the early church leaders named Paul, he wrote a letter to a church in a city called Corinth, and he was bringing them a need that he had presented to a lot of different churches, and it was a great financial need, and and he was asking for their help. And then listen how he frames their response to the need. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7, he says, now look, you guys, since you excel in everything, like in your faith, in speech, in knowledge. You guys are completely earnest and and you're excelling in the love that we have kindled in you. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. And he goes on, he says, I'm not commanding you. In other words, this isn't a Christian rule. This is not the 11th commandment. That's the old and broken idea that you have to do good things in order to get good things. But that's not the way that it works with Jesus. He gives worth to the worthless. He gives value to the valueless. He has shown us a different way, a way that gives as a measure of love. And he goes on in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 8, and he says, but I want to test the sincerity of your love. I'm asking you for an offering and I'm gonna use that offering to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And the new ethic in Christianity, the new ethic in the Jesus movement was not a new list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots, but it was to love others as God through Christ has loved you. To love others as God through Christ has loved you. Because God is love, and love creates outside of itself, and then love gives for the sake of what it has created, and giving is the measure of love. Giving is the measure of your love. So, what's this have to do with us? Right here, right now, Jared's preaching, and you're not sure if he's going to take an offering in a second. What does this have to do with us? Here's what it has to do with us. We are the Jesus movement. We are the Jesus movement. We are the church. We are the church. If you want to find our beginnings... Don't go down to the county recorder's office and look at our articles of incorporation. Go to the book of Acts. Go into the gospel of John. Find Jesus hanging on a cross because he is giving himself for you and for me. And now he has called us to belong together and to exist together as his church. And it is now our calling as the body of Christ to walk into our world and to let our world know that Jesus and this church does not want anything from you, but we want everything for you. We exist to introduce our world to a grace that gives to those that don't deserve it. And we know it's true because we didn't deserve the grace we got when we got it. We don't even deserve the grace of God now. We exist to show the world the unconditional, the radical, the nonsensical love of Jesus Christ that only makes sense if you believe that he is your creator and he has made you in his image. Anybody ever heard that saying, you got a face only a mother could love? Anybody ever heard that before, right? 
You've got a life that only a creator could love. We were the kind of people that only the one that made us in his image and is heartbroken because somewhere along the way we got off. Only he could love us like that. Only he could love us that much. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. And yet he gave himself for us because giving is the measure of his love. And how well we serve will show this world how much we love them like Jesus loved them. How generously we give to the needs that we encounter will show our world whether or not we really love like Jesus loved. And a new day has come for this church. A new day has come for the church in general, but really it's just a renewed day for the church. That while we may be criticized for what we believe, we should be famous for our compassion and generosity. That this world may not like what we believe, that's never going to change. The powers of this world will always be antagonistic to our faith. But we should behave in a way, we should love by giving in such a manner that this world can't help but stand up and applaud when they see how we love and care for people like Jesus loved and cared for us. Now look, you wouldn't be here if you didn't feel this way. I'm not saying anything new to you. This is who we all want to be. I'm guessing that throughout the week and and month and maybe throughout the year, you look for ways to give. You look for ways to be like Jesus and to care for people like Jesus cared for them. But that's the thing. You don't always see the opportunities. But as a pastor, I see needs and opportunities and get phone calls and emails constantly. I'm aware of way more opportunities than we can currently meet. And so I'm teaching on giving. And so I am calling us back to a Christ level of compassion, to a Jesus level of generosity and giving and sacrifice, not so that anybody in this room can get rich, but so that everybody in this room can become the conduits of God's grace and God's love for a lost and hurting world. Can I hear an amen, City Grace? And so... To help us meet those needs, there are three things that are going to happen starting next week. First of all, we're going to present a huge need in our community that we are working on. Secondly, we're going to be introducing the One for One Compassion Campaign. It's going to start off a weekly thing where, well, hold on, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. And then thirdly, next week we are going to recommit our consistent generosity at City Grace. And it's going to cost us to be generous. But Jesus never shied away from sacrifice. But he always counted sacrifice as the measure of our love. So next week, you're going to hear about a huge need for Fairview Elementary School. And we thought that we were doing an awesome thing by designating $10,000 out of our budget, out of our renovation project. We actually like, you know what? We're, we're, we're doing too much for us in the renovation. All of our focus is us, us, us. And so we actually took some of our renovation money and we're giving it out into the community. We thought, man, 10,000 bucks is gonna go a long way to helping some, some kids in a much needed area, right? Whoa, <laughs> we need more. But I am not shying away from the challenge. I'm going to challenge us next week. We are going to bless people with the love and the grace of God. City Grace, we are going to be God's grace to our city. So they need more. 
And then not only in money. You say, well, I can't give very much. Percentage-wise, how much are you giving? Look at Jesus' example. It was perfect. But if you can't give a financial offering, you can serve. You can go to that school and take kids' shoe sizes. You can go to that school and help carry shoe boxes in. And you're gonna see the faces and you're gonna put names to the faces and it's going to change your world because there is something about giving and there is no other feeling like it in the world. Well, that was kind of weak. Okay, okay, we got some work to do, but that's gonna happen. We're starting next week. And then we're introducing the One for One Compassion Campaign. Starting next week, we're gonna take attendance every single week. And whatever our attendance is, we're gonna take a dollar for dollar match to our attendance number. And we're gonna go find someone who is hurting, just a regular person, a single mom or a family that's come up against a financial crisis or a medical crisis. And we are going to donate that money to them and just let them know God is watching and God answers prayer through his church. So that starts next week. And then finally, we're going to recommit to consistent generosity at City Grace. And what we're doing is we're introducing three ways to love by giving at City Grace. At City Grace, you can be a life giver. Life givers give some amount of $20 or more every single week. But here's the thing with life givers. If you sign up to be a life giver, you commit to a recurring offering. Every single week, you will give something. Or I'm sorry, every single month. I apologize. Every single month, you will give a gift of $20 or more, but you'll set it up as a consistent recurring gift. And that supports the basic functions and outreach of the church. Beyond that, you can be a tither at City Grace. Tithers commit to giving 10% of our income through City Grace's ministries, and it supports the ministries and the leadership of City Grace. And finally, you can commit to being a dream builder, where you give some percentage over and above your 10% tithe to fund the future opportunities and campaigns of the church. Why are we giving so much? Why are we presenting all of these opportunities? Why are we designating huge chunks of money to give to our community? We do it because there is so much need. We do it because there is so much need for people to just, to, to just be blessed, to just get a little breathing room, to just believe that God still does hear them and see them in their pain and in their struggle, to let them know that God has made us a family of believers who did not deserve God's kindness, but we got it anyway. And we exist now to share God's grace and his kindness with our world around us. Listen, we have an incredible opportunity at City Grace Bishop and, and the previous generation of leadership of this, of this church has handed off something so potent to us. We, we, we are stewards of an amazing opportunity in this church family. I honor Bishop and, and mom, sister Bishop. I'm gonna call you mom from up here if that's all right. They have given us something so incredible, church. We cannot squander this. And it is not Christ-like if we spend it and we use it all on ourselves. God has given us a huge amount of blessing, but he doesn't want us to turn into a holding tank. He wants us to be a conduit of grace to this world because this world needs to see a God that gives, a God that has given because God is love and love creates outside of itself and then love lives for and love gives for the sake of what it has created. So I'm determined as the pastor of this church that we will show the love of God 
And it won't just be in our words, but it's going to be in our actions. It's going to be in our sacrifice. It's going to be in our generosity. We love with the love of God. And as he's already shown us, love gives. Love gives. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.